This is Banished and I'm Amna Khalid. Earlier this week, Michael Phillips, a history professor who taught at Collin College in Texas for the past 14 years, reported that he was losing his job. Why? Because he spoke out against the college's masking policy. His announcement came hot on the heels of the news that the college had agreed to settle a lawsuit by paying $70,000 to Laura Burnett, a former professor who was fired early last year for criticizing the college's stance on free speech in general and its approach to the pandemic in particular. The president of Cullen College is Neil Matkin. Since he assumed that position in 2015, he's acquired a bit of a reputation for pushing out dissenting faculty. Professor Michael Phillips is the fourth casualty under Matkin's watch. I spoke with Professor Phillips about what is happening at Collin College, what led to his firing, and about academic freedom generally in American higher education. I began by asking him when he started noticing a shift in the campus climate at Collin College. You really began to see a ratcheting up of the attack on free speech when I was involved very deeply in the movement to take down Confederate monuments in Dallas. And this was in 2017, if I remember correctly. Right, in the summer of 2017, the month before Heather Heyer mm-hmm. died in Charlottesville. I had a guest op-ed, I guess, or guest column, mm-hmm. where I called for the monuments to come down in Dallas. And then my suggestion led some activists to contact me and I wrote a, a really major that took like two or three pages of the Dallas Morning News. We got 130 scholars, activists, clergy, imams, rabbis, ministers to sign this letter I co-wrote explaining why these icons are harmful, these icons of white supremacy, as I call them. Mm-hmm. And it said, the, you know, it mentioned me as the co-author, and it identified me as a professor of history at Collin College, which okay. is simply a statement of fact. And then there were some Collin College faculty who um, signed the letter, and they identified themselves as faculty members of Collin College. So let, let me just intervene here for our listeners and clarify that according to the 1940 statement made by the Association for American University Professors, academic freedom is defined as the freedom to do your research without any kind of political hindrance, the freedom to teach and speak in class on relevant matters. And it also includes extramural speech, which is the freedom to speak as a citizen, not in your capacity as representing the institution, but that doesn't mean that you can't attach your title to your name when you are referred to. That has never been the case. So this assumption that your title is going to somehow implicate the institution is flawed. Oh, absolutely. And the courts have said we have a right to address matters of public concern. We don't sign a waiver where we're giving up our freedom of speech, freedom of association. We don't give that up when we sign a contract with a college or university. So I was summoned to a meeting by my provost at the Plano campus just north of Dallas, and she made me read policy and said it was against the policy of the college for me to have done that, to associate myself with the college while I was taking a political position. And uh, I was taking a position as a scholar about right. the meaning of those monuments and the white supremacist propaganda they represent. 
and she made me sign something where I indicated I understood the policy. And at that point, she said, well, you're not in trouble, but sign this, okay? And one of the fascinating things she said at that point was, she said, we don't want the college to look bad. And I asked her, look bad to who? It was obvious to me there was an assumption that when she pictured the face of the Collin College community, she saw a white face and a racist white face <laughs> or a white face that loved Confederate monuments. She didn't think about white students who might be anti-racist and aware of the issues with the monuments. She didn't see a black face. She didn't see a Latinx face. She didn't see a Native American face. And that was revealing to me. I was a member of the faculty council. It's the equivalent of faculty senate. And so the president of the college, Neil Matkin, spoke to that. He said, and he basically told everyone not to do that, to not attach your name to a cause if you identify yourself as an employee of the college. And I had the same conversation with him when he was leaving the meeting. And uh, he, again, he said, don't make the college look bad. And then at one point he told me, I just want to make sure you can keep doing what you're doing, which I took as a rather sinister suggestion that my employment could be endangered if I speak out. So that's the first big incident. A few years later, the El Paso shooter, mass shooter Patrick Crucius, was a student of Collin College. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so the president, again, ignoring the right that faculty have to address matters of public concern, send an email to everybody, uh, direct all press inquiries to our public information officer. I think a reasonable, per reasonable person would interpret that to mean don't talk about the shooter or the shooting. I had a right to talk about that as a subject matter expert on racism because he was motivated by racism, the shooter. But I went ahead, I, I was going to try to comply because I didn't want to get fired. And that's the atmosphere they created where you're fearing for your job. Well, and you have a right to talk about it as a citizen. Absolutely. You don't need to be a scholar of racism to speak on a matter of public interest. Absolutely. So um, the Washington Post called me because of my book on Dallas, White Metropolis, Race, Ethnicity, and Religion in Dallas, <laughs> 1841 to 2001. That's the name of my book. And I told them, okay, well, I'm under pressure. I can't talk about Crucius. I can't talk about the shooting. But I can talk about the history of racism in the Dallas suburbs, and that's why I talked to her about. And there was one particular point she wanted to know about. We had had neo-Nazi flyers posted at our campuses. It said terrible things, you know, like white women. It was warning white women to not date black men, talking about black violence and criminality, et cetera. And uh, she asked if that had happened, and I confirmed it. And that basically is the only part of the interview that ended up in the Washington Post story. And so then I get summoned to a meeting by my, uh, the woman who's my associate dean at that point. And she gives me a level one discipline warning. Tell me a little more about these level one, what are the levels of these discipline warnings? I think the top level is number three. Each one is worse, okay? So I was made to sign a document that I had violated the college policy by giving the interview, making comments. She had me pledge that I would never do, violate a directive again. 
I wrote my objections on the form saying that this is my comments were covered by the First Amendment. So that was it for a while. Then later on, I was summoned to an informal discipline meeting on Zoom when COVID broke out because the provost of the campus had a stack of social media comments I had made. And it was while we were debating, we had a college president who was saying that the pandemic was overblown, that it's being hyped by the media to generate interest during the presidential campaign. He had said at one point that masks were only 10% effective. He said these wildly inaccurate things, and he was pushing as, you know, because we had, the governor had shut things down in March, Greg Abbott. We were reopening for the fall, and he was pushing for full enrollment, you know, basically all classes. This was his initial plan in person. He said, I'm not going to recommend masks because at that point, mask mandates weren't prohibited yet. And so on my Twitter and Facebook page, I said, that feeling when your employer doesn't care about your health and safety. And then here's something that's really surreal. I described on social media a nightmare I had. In this stream, I'm wandering through the college and everyone's sitting side by side. They're talking right face to face. They're not wearing masks. And in the dream, I'm saying everyone's going to die from COVID. And I said, I'm afraid this is what's going to happen when the college reopens. And by the way, at that point, there had been no mechanism set up for someone like me. I got pancreatitis when I was a child, two years old, and I became a a type 1 diabetic 10 years later because of the damage to my pancreas. I'm vulnerable. My wife Mm -hmm. is over 65. She has health liabilities. And so I was made to meet with my provost and my dean over Zoom And they were calling me to account for the social media posts, including the description of a dream. So, Michael, tell me what happened more recently. What is it that led to Colin College declining to renew your contract? So then the final step, really, was at the beginning of the school year this year, yeah, fall of 2021. Everything's open again. They're saying everything's back to normal. Of course, it isn't. You know, the Omicron variant would appear shortly thereafter. Delta was killing people. And we're in this meeting to start the semester with our associate deans and deans. And the associate dean had a PowerPoint where she told us we could not use any language encouraging masks, recommending masks saying mask would be a great idea, no language at all. We couldn't encourage our students in person in our classrooms to do that. And she said it was because the governor's executive order. Greg Abbott had issued an executive order saying you couldn't mandate masks or vaccines. But in the executive order, he encouraged the wearing of masks. The governor himself did. And so they took a terrible executive order that has killed people in Texas by the thousands and made it worse. And they said, just no, don't, don't do anything to urge that because we could get fined, they said. There was no mechanism for fining us if we recommend. We're instituting a gag rule. So I was horrified by that. That day, I had taken a photo of the PowerPoint I posted it on Twitter. I posted it on Facebook because it's a public institution and the public institution doesn't have the right to keep its COVID policy secret. What they do affects the surrounding community. If someone gets sick at the college, 
They can spread it everywhere in the county and beyond. And so I, I said, no, I'm not going to be silent. And plus, I have an obligation to my students. If there's an active shooter on campus, I'm going to try to pull my students to safety. I'm going to try to hide them. I felt like it was an analogous situation. These students are drowning in misinformation. I had students tell me about the wonders of ivermectin. I, I, I feel an obligation to present them facts. So I did that, um, and then I spoke to the Board of Trustees where I talked about the gag rule. But hang on, just one moment. You know, this tweet that you're talking about, the one I've seen online, actually didn't even say anything. It just was a picture of this PowerPoint and said, this is what we've been told uh, as guidance. So it, it's not like you had any commentary on it. You just presented a picture saying, this is the guidance we've been given by the administration. Exactly. So when the board of trustees, it's an elected board of trustees, met the next time, I went up and told them about the gag rule. Maybe some of them had heard about the social media post, but I'm not sure all of them did. So I made that presentation. We get three minutes to speak. Uh, later that week, the first day of class, I'm talking about the pandemic. Their first assignment was on the history of pandemics in North America from Columbus to the coronavirus. Actually, I'm really intrigued by that because I'm a historian of medicine. So I was, when I read your assignment, I was like, I want to know more about the assignment as well. <laughs> so we talked, you know, we talked about, you know, the Spanish and the other mm -hmm. Europeans bring over smallpox and measles and they attribute it to their moral superiority, that God is favoring them because they're Christian yes. and he's killing these pagans to give them those lands. And, and so I talk about how these disease outbreaks reinforce white supremacy. And so, and I mentioned like, for instance, during the influenza epidemic, which was mislabeled the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. which started in Kansas and started this tradition. This happened with immigrant groups in the 19th century, where these diseases become racialized yeah. and are used to reinforce white supremacy. And of course, I mentioned Trump's racist descriptions of these, the, the coronavirus. Uh, but anyway, I, I'm telling him about this assignment. I said, you know, there are anti-mask leagues in San Francisco and other places during the influenza epidemic in 1918, 1919. That really harmed the ability to use a modern term, bend the curve on the flu, you know, to, to slow down the spread. And I said, look, uh, at that point, it was a, a it, had gotten big coverage in the media right before the semester started. There was a Purple Heart winner in the Houston area. He had a treatable condition, but a, a serious one that could kill you. And his family had been unable to find a hospital bed for him to get the treatment, and he died. And so I said, your decisions about how you react to COVID affect the people next to you. Think about the person next to you. They might carry the virus back to their families. Think about it, how it affects you and your longevity. And I was very careful. I said, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to fail you if you don't wear a mask. I want you to feel welcome in the classroom. But please think about the consequences of your actions. And one of the ironies is the college actually has us teach personal and social responsibility. That's supposed to be a criteria, <laughs> right? Uh, so... I was just going to say, you were doing your job as a professor. You were getting the students to think. Yes, which is a dangerous thing at Collin College. So I was summoned to see the dean, associate dean. 
the associate dean said, you know, you shouldn't have gone outside the college to talk about these things. And you bullied the students. Uh, apparently, she said, and she used different language to describe uh, how many did. But she said a couple, several, some students were upset. They felt bullied because I recommended masks. I hurt their feelings. They uh, felt unwelcome. They felt like I was scapegoating them. Apparently, one student lied because I was talking about the history of resistance to expanded government power. And I mentioned yes. Jim Crow laws, you know, the attempts to the federal government, you know, people in the federal government to dismantle Jim Crow and, and so on. And uh, the one student falsely claimed that I said all conservatives are racist. I said nothing resembling that. So she said she was going to investigate me for those comments. I was given one more level one discipline warning for the social media post and for the comments in the class. Four days later, the associate dean and dean told me I wasn't going to be recommended for a contract extension. Michael, can you please clarify here for our listeners? Colin College doesn't give tenure to its professors. Instead, the faculty are given renewable contracts. Can you explain what that system is? We're given a series of contracts. It's a really complex system. There are cycles where we get three-year contracts and they roll over. But we had a trustee who's been on the board and has been the dominant force on the trustee since the college was established in 1985. He was at a tea party gathering. There's a city called Allen in Collin County, and this group is called the Allen Area Patriots. And a person at that candidate forum in 2015 asked this man, Bob Collins, how do you make sure your professors teach Americanism? Which is kind of chilling language for me because, of course, the Klan always talked about Americanism in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you know, we don't have tenure here. And it's by design because when you have tenure, you have these ultra-liberal, socialist, anti-capitalist professors who then get people hired who are like them, and they become entrenched. So we have this contract system. And he says, you know, if you have a bad professor, and it's obviously he meant someone was left of him, then you give him a one-year contract, and you know, eventually it becomes a zero-year contract. So he comes out and says, we're going to make everyone subject to these short three-year contracts at the most, possibly rolling over to six. So I'm not recommended for contract renewal. And then I think they paused and said, well, that's look like there's due process. So after I'm being told they're recommending me for non-renewal, I'm told I have to do a performance improvement plan. That seems out of order, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you're being let go of, why would you need to improve your performance? Yeah. And so I was made to do that. And then after all that's over, they sign a document that I'm not being recommended for contract renewal. The provost of the campus said, I'm not being recommended for renewal. And then I'm called into another meeting. And the senior vice president says, look, you have important scholarship, your lectures, your your performance in classroom is important. We want to help you. And so if you'll work with us, we can, quote, craft a narrative uh, and we'll help you get another job. And basically crafting the narrative involved me lying about leaving voluntarily. I had to say I was quitting. I was going on to another job. I was not to tell anybody that I had been fired. 
And supposedly that was going to be in my benefit. I turned down the offer. <laughs> I saw no reason to lie when they're purging me. There were three other professors who were fired for free speech issues just the year before. It's this uh, one-party county where really right-wing Republicans control every major public office. The county commissioner's court, most of the city councils, there might be a member or two, and the board, as far as I can tell, there are seven men who are all right-wing Republicans, and there are two women who are always outvoted. On the rare occasions, they dissent. Generally speaking, there was more debate and open disagreement discussion in the Politburo in the Soviet Union than there is in the Board of Trustees at Collin College. Faculty are terrified. They're afraid to speak to each other. They're afraid to confide. People talk to me secretly. Tell me more about that. I mean, I'm not asking you to reveal names, of course, but tell me more about the atmosphere on campus, what that means for not just faculty interactions, but how is that playing out, do you think, in the classrooms and in terms of interactions with students? So I had a friend uh, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, who is a geology professor. And during all this battle over free speech, you know, especially with dinosaurs, and he says, yeah, it's a lot of time since the Scopes trial, but I'm worried that I might not be backed up if I talk about evolution. I know professors who have said they are reluctant to talk about LGBTQ people in the classroom and to make, you know, if there's an author, LGBTQ author, to not focus on that identity, you know, maybe teach the literature, but kind of leave the biographical context to the author out of the discussion because they're afraid. Well, that's the other thing, right? If Cullen College doesn't give tenure... Honestly, to my mind, these are cases that show the value of tenure, which is that faculty are protected to be able to pursue complicated things, to talk about controversial issues. What are your thoughts on what's happening in higher ed with regard to the attempt to undermine tenure and the increasing adjunctification? Well, let me say that Colin had had, I think at one point, 80% of the class hours were taught by full-time faculty. This current president, because he says it will provide flexibility, is trying to reduce it to 50%. And this is clearly part of the effort because no one's more vulnerable in terms of employment than adjuncts. You have virtually no job protections. And they could just simply not give you a class. You know, there's no process, no appeal. Uh, It's hard to make a claim legally that you've been fired. But I know of at least one other professor who did urge mask wearing and was not given a class again. Is that an adjunct professor? An adjunct professor, yes. The adjunctification is a form of censorship. I think it's just that professors have not been able to present themselves as a sympathetic proletariat I I tell people when we talk about the working class, I said, really, we have this 19th century model for who the working class is. And, you know, even Marx, people like that didn't anticipate the vast number of middle managers. We need to rethink who the working class is. And I give a very simple one. Do you derive your income from investments? And do you make all the decisions regarding the future of the workplace? Or are you told when to show up for work? 
Is your paycheck dependent on the decision of someone else? And if it, you're dependent, your working hours, your income depends on someone else, I argue you are the modern working class. And this attempt to separate, for instance, professors, oh, we're professionals from people in the shop floor has shattered people who in many ways lack power. I think that the whole idea of tenure has been misrepresented as basically, well, a professor can be lazy, incompetent, lie, show up to work drunk, and it's possible to fire them. You don't have that uh, if you're working at an Amazon fulfillment center. And that's true, yes. But one of the aspects of being a professor is if you're honest, particularly in liberal arts, you're inevitably going to step into politically charged areas. And the way to avoid trouble is to not talk about that. And then that leaves the students incapable of dealing with issues fully informed and knowing the past fully informed, knowing the political system, the economic system. All these things are the undiscovered country for uh, the students if they leave an atmosphere like that. And that's what the college is becoming like that I work at. And especially in a state of Texas where they're hauling off even public library books, not just school library books, oh, yes. entire topics are being banned. I've been fired, so I don't know if I'll get to teach again. But uh, if I do, or you know, my colleagues will be dealing in a few years with the least informed students ever, and it'll be by design. They will not have any knowledge that pertains to accurate history of slavery, the way the Constitution reinforced slavery. They won't know about lynching. They won't know about the different phases of the Ku Klux Klan. They won't know about the xenophobia that shaped our immigration laws, 1924, the efforts of Trump to curb immigration. It'll be a blank slate for them. And there's always been a problem because the textbooks are kind of conveyor belts for white supremacy. They're really badly written because of parent pressure and political pressure. But now the classroom itself, it's ignorance by design. So no one has a useful past to draw on to make the world a better place. They won't know about uh, labor resistance. They won't know about social movements. And they don't have those useful models to challenge the status quo. Professor Michael Phillips taught history at Cullen College for the past 14 years. He's now pursuing legal action against the college and will be represented by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, also known as FIRE. Coming soon, only for paying subscribers, a conversation with Professor Phillips about his lawsuit and his thoughts about freedom of expression for conservative academics. If you'd like to hear my extended conversation with Professor Phillips, please consider becoming a member of Booksmart Studios. You'll get access to bonus segments, written columns, and more. But more importantly, you'll be supporting all the work we do here at Booksmart Studios. Don't forget to rate and share what you've heard here today on whichever platform you listen on. And please leave a comment so we know what you think. Our success at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Fuolo. And I... As always, I'm Amna Khalid. Toodaloo.